So today we're going to go into the reason why the book of Deuteronomy exists, essentially. Um, well, not, not quite. But anyways, uh, we're going to cover chapter 16 and 17 of Numbers. Uh, I'll go ahead and read chapter 16. Hold on here. Um, give me one second. Give me one second. Uh, Jimena's going to read chapter 16. And I'll read chapter 17. Number 16. Revolt of Korah, Datan, and Arima Aram. Now Korah, son of Issachar, son of Kolta, son of son of Levi, along the Dathlon, and Ariman, son of Liban, Libab, and on son of Pelev, the descendants of Reuben, took two hundred and fifty pellets. Pelev, descendants of Reuben, took two hundred and fifty Israelite men. Leaders and congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and they confronted Moses. They assembled against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone far, and the congregation, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exult? Yourselves have assembly from the Lord. When Moses heard, it fell on his face that, that he said to Korah and his company, in the, Lord, in the morning the Lord will be known who is his and who is holy and who will be a, a, allowed to approach him. The one whom he will choose and he will allow to approach him. Do this. Take, censor, take censors. Korah and his all your company, and throw and tomorrow put fire in them, and say license lay license, license, on them before the Lord, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You Levites have gone too far. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you Levites is too little for you, and the God of Israel have separated you from the congregation of Israel to allow you to approach them to the perform to the duties of the Lord's tabernacle and stand before the congregation and serve them. He has allowed the approach him and the, the better Le the brother Levites with you. And you sh yet you seek priesthood as, as well. Therefore, you and all co your company and the gathered together against the Lord. What is Aaron that you rail against him? Moses sent to Dathan and Aramon, son of Ayab. But they said, We will not come. It's too little for they have brought us. Up to followed uh, with milk and honeyed to kill us. In the wilderness and must the Lord over us. It was clear you have not brought us into the falling with milk and honey or given us the inheritance of the field and vineyard. Would you put out the eyes of, of these men? We will not come. Most, Moses and was very angry and said to the Lord, 
pay no attention to to their offering. I have taken one donkey and them when the harmed of them. And Moses said to Korah, As you and all your company be present tomorrow before the Lord, you and they and Aaron, and they will each one of of, of you present in the, the censer before the Lord, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron, each his censer. So each man took his censer and they put fire on on the censers and they laid incense on on them and they stood in the entrance of the tent of meeting with the Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled the whole congregation against the the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the whole congregation. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from this congregation, so that I may consume consume them in a moment, in a movement, in a, in a moment. They, they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one person sin, and you become angry. With the whole congregation. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Ariman. But Moses got up, went to Dathan and Ariman. The elders of Israel followed him. He said to them, He said to the congregation, Turn away from the tents and these of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, or you will be swept away. For all their sins. So they got up in the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Ariman. And, and Dathan and Ariman came out and stood out, and stood out in the entrance of their tents. Together they, with their wives, their children, and their little ones. And Moses said, This is how you shall know. The Lord hath sent me in the, these works, and shall be not have Fate comes on them, and the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the the ground opens, the ground opens its mouth, and and swallows them up, and belongs to them, and they go down and live in Saul. They shall know that these men have this despised the Lord. As soon as the has finished speaking these words the the ground under them split apart the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up along along with their households everyone who belonged to Korah and their goods so they with all their belonged to them went down and alive to Saul the earth closed over them and they perished from the middle of the Assembly. All Israel around them fled out, out of the outcry. From, from they said, The earth will swallow us too. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the two hundred and fifty men, offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Issachar, son of Aaron, the priest, to take censers out of the blaze. Then scatter the fire far and wide. 
for the censors of these sinners have became become holy of the cost of their lives make them have into hammered plates and covered in the altar this they presented before the lord and they came became holy thus they shall be a sign to the israelites so Isasar the priest took the bronze censers that have presented those who were burnt and they were hammered and covered from the altar so reminder so the israelites no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron shall approach to offer incense before the Lord, so as not to become by Korah in his company, as the Lord had said to him through Moses. On the next day, however, the whole congregation of the Israelites rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and against Aaron saying, you, shall, you have killed the, the people of the Lord. And when the congregation have assembled against them, Moses and Aaron, towards the tent of meeting, of the cloud have covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, so that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take the censer of the fire and put it on the altar. And laying incense, they cried in the quickly in the congregation and made atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses had ordered and run into the middle of the assembly where the plague had, had already begun. Among the people he put on the incense and made an atonement for the people. He stood between the, the dead and the living, and the plague has stopped. Those who died by the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. When the plague has stopped, Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Awesome. Okay. So this chapter um, speaks of Korah's rebellion, right? So what, what are some things that we want to understand here? What exactly was going on? Why were they rebelling? These were, in fact, Levites who were rebelling. And if you notice, um, there's a question posed. It says, um, are you not satisfied that the God of Israel has singled you out from the community of Israel to have you draw near to him? maintain the Lord's tabernacle and to attend upon the community and to serve him. He has allowed you and your Levite kinsmen with you to approach him. And yet you seek the priesthood too. Whoa. It's like, what? I thought Levites were priests. Yes. And yes. And no. Um, again, I, I went over this last time. It's good to clarify it again. This idea of the entire tribe of Levi being sort of, um, the that's known as the priestly tribe. However, only the sons of Aaron, only the family of Aaron, had the true priesthood. And the rest of the Levites had more of a, a diaconate role. Um, so the reason why, you know, many times you'll hear oh, the Levitical priests, so on and so forth, 
Um, the only way to make the distinction is within the context of the various passages. But if you want an analogy, think of the word cleric. Somebody who doesn't know the difference between a brother, a bishop, and a priest would refer to all of them as cleric. Um, but they're very much different, as you would know. Um, so in the very similar sense, the Levitical priesthood uh, holds the exact same sort of look, I guess you can say, to it. Um, with the Levites, the vast majority of the Levites, with the exception of the House of Aaron. And we'll see why in a bit. Uh, they hold the true office of priesthood. And so here they're trying to rebel. Um, but it's not so much because they think, oh, um, this is unjust. No, they're for the priesthood. They just want it for themselves. So that's an issue. Um, another thing, just to draw on uh, some history here, they attempt to gather popular support for this movement by employing a slogan roughly equivalent to the concept of the priesthood of all believers which is something that uh, historical Protestantism tried to do to reject the fact of the ministerial, ministerial priesthood. Because scripture does teach, you know, everyone is anointed priest, prophet, king, right? By way of God, uh, Vatican II affirms this, right? Um, but uh, there's still a difference between the ministerial priesthood and the general priesthood. Um, but Protestants use this argument from way back then to try and use it against the ministerial priesthood. So it's in interesting to see that here in scripture um one other thing they implore help um quran tracks the political support of dathan and abiram which are leaders of the tribe of reuben and if you remember reuben uh is the firstborn okay so he has this sort of um firstborn natural claim to the civil leadership of israel but because of his transgressions um and mainly that he slept with his father's concubine. Um, this would be back in Genesis 35 and 49, uh, when it's reiterated in 49. Essentially, and I'll read to you the, the part real quick. This is when Jacob calls his sons, uh, gathers them around to give them blessings. So he, he speaks first to Reuben. Verse 3 says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. So here you have this sort of, this blessing, but it's also a curse. Um, and so Reuben, the tribe of Reuben sort of kicked to the side a bit because of their rebellion. Um, in any case, or because of what Reuben himself did, um, they wanted to seek this political authority, ultimately. And so they're like, okay, well, Let's test it. Offer up this fire, right? This fire to the Lord and the Lord will judge, right? Let him be the judge. And he, in fact, judged. And everyone that was in the group was condemned. And they fell into the realm of the dead. Sheol. So moving on into chapter 17, we're going to see um, what I hope stands out. Uh, a very special event. So the Lord now said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and get from them a staff from each ancestral house, 12 staffs in all, from all the leaders of their ancestral houses, write each of the man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on Levi's staff. For each head of an ancestral house shall have a staff. Then deposit them in the tent of meeting in front of the covenant where I meet you. The staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I'll rid myself of the Israelites grumbling against you. 
So Moses spoke to the Israelites and all the leaders, gave them staffs, 12 in, e in all, one from each leader of their ancestral houses, and Aaron's staff was among them. Then Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the covenant. And the next day, when Moses entered the tent of the covenant, Aaron's staff, representing the house of Levi, had sprouted. It had put forth sprouts, produced blossoms, and borne ripe almonds. So Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites, and each one identified his own staff and took it. Then the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of the covenant for safekeeping as a sign to the rebellious so that their grumbling against me may cease and they may not die. Moses did this just as the Lord had commanded him. He do it. Then the Israelites exclaimed to Moses, we will perish. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who approaches the tabernacle, of the Lord will die or there'll be no end to, to our perishing. Um... And so, here we have the famous story of Aaron's staff budding, proving that he is the true, the true high priest, right? The true priest chosen by God. Um, and if you remember the Marian typologies, uh, one thing that's in the Ark of the Covenant, as just stated, is the staff of Aaron. Mary herself had the true high priest, not just a symbol of the high priest, within her womb. Um, so it's just, it's really awesome to see this stuff within context, um, for the first time. One other thing I forgot to mention, and notice this, um, and we've been over this many times. This is in uh, chapter 16 in Numbers. Uh, it's, it's verse 13 and 14. And it says, are you not satisfied that you've brought us out from a land flowing with milk and honey to have us perish in the wilderness? That now you must also lord it over us. Think of how twisted that is. Um, think of how God promised to take them to a land of milk and honey, how God promised to give them so much, how God's given them the miracle of the manna, the miracle of the quail, although that was to their detriment, how God has provided for them with the 10 plagues to get them out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery. And yet here they're in the wilderness. They have some struggle, some minor struggle. Pride is ensuing and they think, Wow, you've took us from the land flowing of milk and honey. Twisting, you know, God's words, God's promise there. It says, far from bringing us to a land of milk and honey or giving us fields and, and vineyards for our inheritance, will you gouge out our eyes? No, we will not go. Isn't that? And it's very indicative of our times now, you know, people who live in sin, live a sinful life and, if you're living in sin, stuff's happening. Bad stuff's going to happen. And people's like, oh, it's all God's fault. If only he didn't. Or if only he would. Why doesn't he love me? Or why doesn't he help me? Well, if you're living in your sin, as Paul would literally say, there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Um, but notice what sin does. Notice what pride did here. It twisted them. It twisted their viewpoint. It made them see things differently. God's promising them a, a land flowing with milk and honey, but they identify their bondage as a land flowing with milk and honey. Think about how I'm sure many of you have, or all of you have tried to get over a certain sin that you have, whatever it may be. Think about the journey through that if you've been liberated already. And think about, did you, did you look back at the sin and think things were a lot easier back then? Uh, I know I definitely have. Um, as I've 
grown deeper into my faith, I, I think like, you know, these attacks, these spiritual attacks weren't even all that big a deal back then. But that's because I wasn't fighting. I was just agreeing. For me, the, that time in the past was land flowing with milk and honey. Um, when really the Lord is offering us so much more. And yet we just don't want it. You know, we want what we think is good, what we think is safe. And it's not unique to us. It's literally existed for over what, four, six thousand years, however long ago this these events happened. Um so it's beautiful to meditate on that and maybe turn that into something positive and contemplate the love of God and how patient he is and how giving he is. How even though we want a land of dirt. He still wants to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's something that's never left him. That he's always wanted to give us. No matter how many times we rebel or how many times we fall short of his glory. He's always trying to give us everything because he is a good father. Um, at the end of all this, they stop their grumbling and that is the end of it with this. If there are no questions, we can move to the psalm. Psalm number 25, a prayer for, for guidance and protection. To you, O Lord, I offer my prayer, and you, my God, I trust. Save me from the shame of defeat. Don't let my enemies float over me. Defeat not come the defeat does not come to those who trust in you, but to those who are quick to rebel against you. Teach me your ways, O Lord, make them known to me. Teach me to live according to your truth, for you are my God who saves me. I always trust in you. Remember, O Lord, your kindness and your constant love, which you have shown from long ago. Forgive the sins and errors of my youth. In your constant love and goodness, remember me, O Lord. Because the Lord is righteous and good, he teaches sinners the path they should follow. He leads the humble in the right way and teaches them his will. With faithfulness and love, he leads all those who keep his covenant to obey his commands. Keep your promise, Lord, and forgive my sins, for there are many. Those who have reverence for the Lord will learn from him the path they should follow. They will always be prosperous, and their children will possess the land. The Lord is the friend of those who obey him, and he affirms his covenant with them. I look to the Lord for help at all times, and he rescues me from danger. Turn to me, Lord, and be merciful to me because I am lonely and weak. Relieve me of my worries and save me from all my troubles. Consider my distress and suffering and forgive all my sins. See how many enemies I have. See how much they hate me. Protect me and save me. Keep me from defeat. I come to you for safety. May my goodness and honesty preserve me because I trust in you. From all their troubles, O oh God, save your people, Israel. 
Awesome. Um, again, this is a typical lament psalm. Uh, you have those pleas for God's mercy. Um, but at the same time, you will have um, expression of confidence in the God who forgives and guides. So, uh, as always, go back, reread this psalm, uh, do it prayerfully, um, and just resonate with it, connect with it. You know, this is the voice of our father in faith, David. Um, and he truly has this repentance that we should seek because it was such a true repentance. Um, and so whenever we do sin, it doesn't matter how small, we should repent like David did. In fact, repent better than David did. Because David did not have the revelation of Christ. He had an expectation and a hope of a savior. And maybe that's what drew him to repentance. But ultimately, um, we have the revelation of the savior and still have the hope. And so we should allow his effects of the work that he did on the cross to impact us um, and bring about a better conversion and a better repentance. But without further infidelity to them arose and brought him before Pilate. They brought charges against him, saying, We found this man misleading our people. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar and maintains that he is the Messiah, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He said to him in reply, You say so. Pilate then addressed the chief priests and the crowds. I find this man not guilty, but they were adamant and said, He is inciting the people with his teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, where he began even here. So, the innocence of Jesus, it pulses through this section, right? We see this over and over again. He is the wrong one who is righteous, right? So, Jesus... um unbound right he journeys to god freely and obediently of course as his predictions um in chapter 9 and uh 18 they're being fulfilled and Pilate here of course um he has the authority to pronounce a sentence of death by crucifixion upon a criminal and they're saying here uh they're accusing him right there's these charges against jesus um but they're not based in reality right Jesus did not forbid um, the payment of um, the imperial tax. Right in his kingship, we know that it's not a political one. Um, of course, it, it consists in serving. So Luke kind of um, stresses irony. Right, he stresses that the Jews themselves—that um, it is the Jews themselves—who um, not only approve of insurrection but also incite riots. So we see that these uh, charges, they're against Jesus, they're political. Um, and we see that 
pilot, he says that there's no, he finds no crime in him. So, we see Jesus before Herod. On this hearing, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean, and upon learning that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. He had been wanting to see him for a long time, for he had heard about him and had been hoping to see him perform some sign. He questioned him at length, but he gave him no answer. The chief priests and scribes, meanwhile, stood by accusing him harshly. Even Herod and his soldiers treated him contemptuously and mocked him. And after clothing him in resplendent garb, he sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate became friends that very day, even though they had been enemies formerly. Pilate then summoned the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought this man to me and accused him of inciting the people to revolt. I have conducted my investigation in your presence, and I have not found this man guilty of the charges you have brought against him, nor did Herod, for he sent him back to us. So no capital crime has been committed by him. Therefore, I shall have him flogged and then release him. So, proper to Luke, um, we see really that this is prepared for. We've been seeing this. Um, Jesus knows this is going to happen, right? We've been seeing this in chapter 3, uh, 9, 13, so on and so forth. And Luke mentions um, three times kind of this scene right setting up a kind of contrast between the type of scene herod brings to jesus and the type of scene required for faith um and we see that in this se session with Pilate, um jesus remains silent here his silence uh, it's the innocently suffering righteous servant of isaiah that we see in uh chapter 53 this silence born of profound trust in a faithful God. And we see that he is um, put in a, a fancy garb, right? Kind of this um, other translation would say a white gorgeous robe. So Herod is a tetrarch, right? And this robe is not kingly. So this kind of represents um, two meanings. Okay, Jesus, the innocent one, he's clothed in white, a symbol of purity. And Jesus is clothed in, and also Jesus is clothed in a garment worn by candidates for office. So we know, um, we'll continue reading, we'll know that um, it's who is going to be picked, right? Will the Jewish nation select him or Barabbas? And also very, very interesting, we see that um, Herod and Pilate become friends. So even when uh, Jesus kind of seems powerless here, we know that he's not, right? We see that he's able to affect a saving work here, reconciliation uh, between these enemies. They were odds with each other, but uh, through this, they have been reconciled. They are friends now. Very interesting. And going further, we have the sentence of death. But altogether, they shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Now, Barabbas had been imprisoned pri for a rebellion that had been taken place in the city and for murder. Again, Pilate addressed them, still wishing to release Jesus. But they continued their shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate addressed them a third time. What evil has this man done? I found him guilty of no capital crime. Therefore, I, I shall have him flogged and then release him. With loud shouts, however, they persisted in calling for his crucifixion, and their voices prevailed. The verdict of Pilate was that their demand should be granted. So he released the man who had been imprisoned for rebellion and murder, for whom they asked, and he handed Jesus over to them to deal with as he wished. So we see that um, Pilate, of course, to, continues to declare G, uh, Jesus innocent, um, but he plays a coward um, when everyone is demanding his death. And we see that um, twice more in this we just read, Israel demands Jesus' death. Um, and five times Luke describes the choice of all Israel that Jesus be condemned. Um, and Barabbas, he's, he's a substitute criminal, right? He's demanded in place of criminal. Um, there's this irony in this scene. And they scream for the release of Barabbas and reject who really is the father. Because you know that Barabbas means son of the father and um, everyone is everyone is um, rejecting who truly is the father, um, son of the father, Jesus, right? And so we see here uh, that what uh, Barabbas is, um, had been imprisoned for, uh, insurrection and murder. Um, so Luke is underscoring Barabbas' uh, character, right? And Jesus will die that such persons may be liberated from prison. Uh, this, like, Barabbas and uh, a nefarious type of people, right? So then we see, for one more time, um, Pilate uh, pronounces Jesus innocent, right? And Pilate also mentions uh, this um, light beating. Um, interesting enough, uh, some of the versions are different, but right, yeah, his flogging is scourging. Um, Luke, though, he never says that Jesus was beating or scourged. Um, he goes to his cross in full command of the situation. So very interesting. He never um, note, mo notes that, but the versions are different. Um, furthermore, we have uh, all the people who make clear um, they're, they're here. Um, verse 23, with loud shouts, however, they persisted in calling for his crucifixion and their voices prevailed. Uh, it make clear that the people of God repent of their action against Jesus, whereas the religious leaders remain firm in their decisions. We'll see this as we continue further. And uh, we see that they handed over their will, right? Um, here, the Luke and Pilate had already um, given that the, uh, this is not a judicial um, sentence. Pilate had already given that, right? Jesus is innocent. Um, but here, Luke uh, lessens Roman involvement in Jesus' condemnation and crucifixion. So, what follows is we can see that uh, God does not allow human perversion of the noble institution of Roman law and justice 
to render or hinder his plans, right, of bringing about new life, the resurrection, and the reconstituted Israel. And then we have here going further, the way of the cross. As they led him away, they took hold of a Cyrenian, a certain Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country. And after laying the cross on him, they made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed Jesus, including many women who mourned and lamented him. Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep instead for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming when people will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. At that time, people will say to the mountains, Fall upon us, and the hills cover us. For if these things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, two others, both criminals, were led away with him to be executed. So we see here, of course, um, under the Roman law, uh, civilians could be ordered to participate in temporary service as when, as was necessary. So we have um, Simon, who is the Syrian. He kind of symbolizes here the Lord's invitation to us, his followers, right, to share in his cross, um, which is oftentimes unexpected, right? Very interesting here. And we also see that the Lord is dependent on this, and um, Simon is very, um, very helpful to us in that example of taking up our cross, right? We also have um, this... If they do this, this dry wood, right? This dry wood is more suited, interesting enough, this dry wood is more suited to burning than green wood. And Christ, who is innocent, he is the green wood. The suffering of the guilty would be far more severe. That's what we see here. Now, we go into um, the account of the crucifixion. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him. And the criminal was there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They divided his garments by casting lots. The people stood by and watched. The rulers, meanwhile, sneered at him and said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the chosen one, the Messiah of God. Even the soldiers jeered at him. As they approached to offer him wine, they called out, If you are the king of Jews, save yourself. Above him, there is an inscription that read, This is the king of the Jews. Now, one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God for you? Are subject to the same condemnation and indeed we have been condemned justly for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes but this man has done nothing criminal then he said jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom he replied to him amen i say to you today you will be with me in paradise so we have here um, of course, Jesus' uh, crucifixion 
And we know that these um, rulers, people, when they look at Jesus, they, on the cross, they don't see a king, they see a criminal here, right? Um, and it's important for us to kind of understand that, of course, in the first century AD, crucifixion was used um, by the Roman Empire, uh, not just as a standard method of execution for just anyone, um, but... It was a standard method of execution for slaves. So, um, Roman Empire, there were different categories of citizenry. Citizenry, sorry. Um, so, if you were a formal citizen of the empire, like uh, Saint Paul, you were a Roman citizen, then you wouldn't be dead, put to death by crucifixion. Um, so, these there's these different type of things. There's a uh, beheading as we know that St. Paul um, injured. Um, so that was considered a more noble way of dying. But we see here, um, also we know about uh, Peter. Um, he was um, put to death by um, Crucifixion. He he was a slave of the empire, right? He there's this different type of citizenry. So, in first Jewish context, uh, the as the first aspect uh here that we see is that um Christ on a cross does not look like a king, right? He looks like a slave, and that's why um the people of the crowd and the the rulers. Um, they're mocking him. They're saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, if he is the chosen one. And of course we know that uh, the word Christ, a lot of people think, oh, uh, it's his last name, right? Jesus Christ. No, it's a title. It's a title. And we know that Christos means the anointed one. Um, anointed one is reference to the king, right? It's So if you call him Christos, you're calling him the anointed one. So this is um, kind of like when the rulers are looking at Jesus, they are saying, this guy can't be the Christos, right? He can't be the anointed one um, because he's taking the form of a slave. He's being executed like a slave as a criminal and not as a king. Um, so of course we know that they're taunting him. Um, why can't he save himself? Right. And the soldiers are also mocking him. Um, and we know that these Roman soldiers, they're pagan, right? Um, and they're saying this, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription, um, the inscription is saying, this is the king of the Jews. Right? This is meant to mock him. Um, and Pilate, of course, is not confessing his faith, his faith in Jesus. Uh, his um, messiahship, right, by having this title put above the cross. It's meant to mock him. Uh, saying, you claim to be a king, well, I'll show you what type of king you are, right? Um, he then hang him on a cross and efficacate um, him to death. So we also have here these um, two criminals that have been crucified with Jesus. And it says... One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christos? Save yourself and us. 
So, of course, if you are the king, do something here. Kings are supposed to be powerful, so why can't you save us? The other, of course, we know, rebuked him. Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence and condemnation. We hear justly. So he knows that they have done something to deserve this. But he knows that this man is innocent, Jesus, right? And it's very powerful what he says. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Um, it's very um, interesting. There's just different vers uh, versions, translations of this. Um, it, what it really says is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power. Um, well, that's kind of a, a bad translation, but um, we the Greek word here is basil, right? It means kingdom. Um, but uh, there's other translations of like the reign of God, um, and it has this king, God's kingdom, right? Uh, exercises His rule um, wherever God is reigning, right? Whether it be um, anywhere, so. There's this um, different type of uh, translations here. Um, we go further, right? The context here, it's very clear. Um, this term, um, Basilia Kingdom, it's to refer to a realm in which Jesus will enter after his, after, after his death, right? Um, Jesus confirms this because when he responds to the thief, uh, he says, truly, amen which we know is so be it, right? It's like, so be it, and he affirms this. He says, um, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And here we have the Greek word of uh, paradisios, right? Um, it's the word, literally, a garden. We, It's taken from the Greek translation of Genesis, description of Eden. Um, so it says that the Lord planted a garden in Eden. And the Greek translation of that says the Lord planted, or the Lord God planted a paradise in Eden, or paradise. Right? It's a reference to like an orchid. And we see that paradisios, it was a, another way of referring to Eden and uh, to the place of peace and righteousness and holiness, of which Adam and Eve were at the beginning of the creation before the fall. Right? And so in Jewish escape, eschatology, can I speak, <laughs> would return in the age to come, right? So there's an idea that the end of time would be like the beginning of time. So that they were living in this old creation, the, this fallen world now, there would be a new world, the world to come. So we see the thief here and Jesus um, are speaking in two different ways about the same thing. The thief is talking about the kingdom of God that was to expected, that was expected to come at the end of the age. And Jesus says, "Today you will be with me in paradise." So it's very important because it reveals the nature of Jesus' kingdom. It's not a kingdom of this world, and we see that um, also in Mark. Jesus says that um, his kingdom his uh kingship it's not of this world it's not as um the rulers are saying oh he's political right that's not that's not it uh, this is not a worldly kingdom we can see this also um in the gospel of john there's a parallel here 
um, and we'll see this. And he says, or Pilate asks him, so you're a king? And Jesus says, yes, but my kingdom is on this world. Right? And we'll remember that also from work. So Jesus is a king, but he is not an earthly king. He has a kingdom, but it's not here. It's not of this world. Um, it's just kind of this paradox of the cross and the kingship of Jesus. So on earth, Jesus reigns um, from the throne of the cross. This is how he is exalted as a king. It's precisely through this death that he has on the cross. It's through his crucifixion that he has kingship. So, going further, we have this, um, his death, the death of Jesus. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, because of an eclipse of the sun, and the veil of the temple was torn down the middle. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed. He's breathed his last breath. The centurion, who witnessed what happened, glorified God and said, This man, who is innocent beyond doubt. When all the people who had gathered for this spectacle saw what had happened, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances stood at a distance, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee. So we have that the we have here that the curtain in the temple um it separated the presence of God and the holy of holies from the people. So it's tearing from the top and the bottom. It signifies that the sacrificial death of Christ it opens the path of the faithful to the very presence of God. Right? So through our union with the resurrected Christ, we enter into the everlasting life. Of the Trinity. And then we have going further, um, this burial of Jesus. Now there was a virtuous and righteous man named Joseph, who, though he was a member of the council, had not consecrated consented to their plan of inaction. He came from the Jewish town of Amrithia and was awaiting the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. After he had taken the body down, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a rock-hewn tomb in which no one had yet been buried. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come from Galilee with him followed behind and when they had seen the tomb, and the way in which the body was laid in it, they returned and prepared spices and perfumed oils, and they rested on the Sabbath day according to the commandment. So, we have here, of course, one moment. So we have that Jesus is giving this uh, kingly burial. Right, so Joseph of Arimathea and the faithful women, they provide additional um, positive responses to God's um, revelation in Jesus crucified. Right, so we see here um, 
that they uh the decision of the religious leaders against Jesus was not unanimous, right? So there's this assembly, the council, that it was not unanimous. Um, and we have the kingdom of God. And he was awaiting the kingdom of God. That's what we have here. This theme, of course, it's being streamed through uh, this gospel, right? Um, Jesus, even in death, he is the bringer of God's kingdom. And this linen that we have here, really at the time of Luke, linen was the symbol of immorality. And it came from flax, which um, came from a life-giving earth. So in hope of the resurrection, Joseph clothes Jesus in this linen. Um, and we'll see in uh, chapter 24... Or in chapter 24, Peter will find the linen clothes by themselves. And so the symbol of the resurrection life gives way to the reality of the risen Lord Jesus, right? Who reveals what God has done in store for all creation. And so we see that um, crucified and innocent and righteous Jesus, he is not tossed into a common grave, right? But he is given a burial fitting to one who is God's Messiah, chosen one, right? Very beautiful here, um, ending here with the burial of Jesus. But some um, things to point out, of course, throughout this whole um, account, we know that Christ was merciful to those who executed him, right? Just as he uh, was merciful also, if we remember, to the slave who had um, his ear cut off, right, during the arrest. Um, his words spoken from the cross, we see that um, it shows that his prayer and his gift of self, they're united. With the words of Christ, they, of course, remind us to pray for and to forgive even those who persecute us, right, those who hurt us. Um, and his death it cannot be blamed collectively on the Jews of Christ's day, right? It's very important to highlight this. You cannot generalize this and put that blame on them um, or their descendants, right? But rather every person, all of us, by virtue of original sin, right, in actual sins, we bear the responsibility for his crucifixion. You know, also, um, that this is um, the ultimate example of love, right? We, and we really see here this in Luke's account. That Christ's passion it includes every virtue that we can emulate, especially in suffering and adversary. And so, while he processed to the site of his crucifixion, we see um, Jesus, he nevertheless, he takes time to comfort others and to forgive his persecutors and to pray and to announce salvation um, to the repentant thief as we saw right and to um, commend himself into God's hands and we see the crowd of onlookers and even the Roman centurion of course they were moved to repentance and faith um, in his as his in his divinity um, as a result as a result of Christ doing this. So that is Luke chapter 23 for today. If you have any questions, comments, um, please go ahead.
um if not we can just end in prayer and pl but please do if you uh have anything that stood out to you it's a very um solemn chapter i think uh, very important all these highlights and just remembering how we have to emulate christ's love um and knowing that even amidst all of this um suffering persecution what happens in the next chapter right the lord is raised and um just gives us hope and uh waiting for the lord so with that we can go ahead and and in prayer